evening's assembly of the Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society. It is I, your humble horror-hound, your trafficker of terror, your host of horrible homilies, Elmer the Embalmer, yes. Tonight's subpar tale is a dreary, damp descent into the deepest depths of mental malady and eldritch corruption, all sealed up in a World War I sauerkraut can. Ha! This dismal delight is presented to the esteemed members of the Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society as our first two-part sour sermon. So, don a stinky snorkel, batten the hatchets, and prepare your swimmer's ear for the temple by H.P. Lovecraft. First published in issue 24 of Weird Tales in 1924. The following text was compiled from a manuscript found upon the coast of Yucatan. On August 20th, 1917, I, Karl Heinrich Graf von Ottenberg Ehrenstein, Lieutenant Commander in the Imperial German Navy and in charge of the submarine U-29, deposit this bottle and record in the Atlantic Ocean at a point to me unknown, but probably about north latitude 20 degrees, west longitude 35 degrees where my ship lies disabled on the ocean floor. I do so because of my desire to set certain unusual facts before the public, a thing I shall not in all probability survive to accomplish in person, since the circumstances surrounding me are as menacing as they are extraordinary, and involve not only the hopeless crippling of the U-29, but the impairment of my iron German will in a manner most disastrous. On the afternoon of June 18, as reported by my wireless to the U-61, bound for Kiel, we torpedoed the British freighter Victory, New York to Liverpool, in north latitude 45 degrees 16 minutes west, longitude 28 degrees 34 minutes permitting the crew to leave in boats in order to obtain a good cinema view for the Admiralty records. The ship sank quite picturesquely, bow first, the stern rising high out of the water whilst the hull shot down perpendicularly to the bottom of the sea. Our camera missed nothing, and I regret that so fine a reel of film should never reach Berlin. After that, we sank the lifeboats with our guns and submerged. When we rose to the surface about sunset, a seaman's body was found on the deck, hands gripping the railing in curious fashion. The poor fellow was young, rather dark and very handsome, probably an Italian or Greek, and undoubtedly of the Victory's crew. He had evidently sought refuge on the very ship which had been forced to destroy his own, one more victim of the unjust war of aggression which the English pig dogs are waging upon the fatherland. Our men searched him for souvenirs and found in his coat pocket a very odd bit of ivory carved to represent a youth's head crowned with laurel. My fellow officer, Lieutenant Clenzy, 
believed that the thing was of great age and artistic value, so took it from the men for himself. How it had ever come into the possession of a common sailor, neither he nor I could imagine. As the dead man was thrown overboard, there occurred two incidents which created much disturbance amongst the crew. The fellow's eyes had been closed, but in the dragging of his body to the rail they were jarred open, and many seemed to entertain a queer delusion that they gazed steadily and mockingly at Schmidt and Zimmer, who were bent over the corpse. The boatswain, Mueller, an elderly man who would have known better had he not been a superstitious Alstian swine, became so excited by this impression that he watched the body in the water and swore that after it sank a little, it drew its limbs into a swimming position and sped away to the south under the waves. Clensey and I did not like these displays of peasant ignorance and severely reprimanded the men, particularly Muller. The next day, a very troublesome situation was created by the indisposition of some of the crew. They were evidently suffering from the nervous strain of our long voyage and had bad dreams. Several seemed quite dazed and stupid, and after satisfying myself that they were not feigning their weakness, I excused them from their duties. The sea was rather rough, so we descended to a depth where the waves were less troublesome. Here we were comparatively calm, despite a somewhat puzzling southward current which we could not identify from our ocean charts. The moans of the sick men were decidedly annoying, but since they did not appear to demoralize the rest of the crew, we did not resort to extreme measures. It was our plan to remain where we were and intercept the liner Dacia, mentioned in information from agents in New York. In the early evening, we rose to the surface and found the sea less heavy. The smoke of a battleship was on the northern horizon, but our distance and ability to submerge made us safe. What worried us more was the talk of Boatswain Mueller, which grew wilder as night came on. He was in a detestably childish state and babbled of some illusion of dead bodies drifting past the undersea portholes, bodies which looked at him intensely and which he recognized in spite of bloating as having seen dying during some of our victorious German exploits. And he said that the young man we had found and tossed overboard was their leader. This was very gruesome and abnormal, so we confined Mueller in irons and had him soundly whipped. The men were not pleased at his punishment, but discipline was necessary, We also denied the request of a delegation headed by Seaman Zimmer that the curious carved ivory head be cast into the sea. On June 20th, Seaman Baum and Schmidt, who had been ill the day before, became violently insane. I regretted that no physician was included in our complement of officers, since German lives are precious, but the constant ravings of the two concerning a terrible curse were most subversive of discipline so drastic steps were taken. The crew accepted the event in a sullen fashion, but it seemed to quiet Mueller, who thereafter gave us no trouble. In the evening, we released him, and he went about his duties silently. In the week that followed, we were all very nervous, watching for the Decia. The tension was aggravated by the disappearance of Mueller and Zimmer, who undoubtedly committed suicide as a result of the fears which had seemed to harass them, though they were not observed in the act of jumping overboard. 
I was rather glad to be rid of Mueller, for his silence had unfavorably affected the crew. Everyone seemed inclined to be silent now, as though holding a secret fear. Many were ill, but none made a disturbance. Lieutenant Clenzie chaffed under the strain and was annoyed by the merest trifles, such as the school of dolphins which gathered about the E-29 in increasing numbers, and the growing intensity of that southward current which was not on our chart. It at length became apparent that we had missed the Dacia altogether. Such failures are not uncommon, and we were more pleased than disappointed, since our return to Wilhelmshaven was now in order. At noon, June 28th, we turned northeastward, and despite some rather comical entanglements with the unusual masses of dolphins, were soon underway. The explosion in the engine room at 2 p.m. was wholly a surprise. No defect in the machinery or carelessness in the men had been noticed, yet, without warning, the ship was racked from end to end with a colossal shock. Lieutenant Clenzie hurried to the engine room, finding the fuel tank and most of the mechanism shattered, and engineers Rob and Schneider instantly killed. Our situation had suddenly become grave indeed, for though the chemical air regenerators were intact, and though we could use the devices for raising and submerging the ship and opening the hatches as long as compressed air and storage batteries might hold out, we were powerless to propel or guide the submarine. To seek rescue in the lifeboats would be to deliver ourselves into the hands of enemies unreasonably embittered against our great German nation, and our wireless had failed ever since the victory affair to put us in touch with a fellow U-boat of the Imperial Navy. From the hour of the accident till July 2nd, we drifted constantly to the south, almost without plans and encountering no vessel. Dolphins still encircled the U-29, a somewhat remarkable circumstance considering the distance we had covered. On the morning of July 2nd, we sighted a warship flying American colors, and the men became very restless in their desire to surrender. Finally, Lieutenant Clenzie had to shoot a seaman named Traub, who urged his un-German act with especial violence. This quieted the crew for the time, and we submerged unseen. The next afternoon, a dense flock of seabirds appeared from the south, and the ocean began to heave ominously. Closing our hatches, we awaited developments until we realized that we must either submerge or be swamped in the mounting waves. Our air pressure and electricity were diminishing, and we wished to avoid all unnecessary use of our slender mechanical resources, but in this case there was no choice. We did not descend far, and when, after several hours, the sea was calmer, we decided to return to the surface. Here, however, a new trouble developed, for the ship failed to respond to our direction in spite of all that the mechanics could do. As the men grew more frightened at this undersea imprisonment, some of them began to mutter about Lieutenant Clenzie's ivory image, but the sight of an automatic pistol calmed them. We kept the poor devils as busy as we could, tinkering at the machinery, even when we knew it was useless. Clenzie and I usually slept at different times, and it was during my sleep, about 5 a.m. July 4th, that the general mutiny broke loose. The six remaining pigs of seamen, suspecting that we were lost, had suddenly burst into a mad fury at our refusal to surrender to the Yankee battleship two days before, and were in a delirium of cursing and destruction. 
They roared like the animals they were and broke instruments and furniture indiscriminately, screaming about such nonsense as the curse of the ivory image and the dark dead youth who looked at them and swam away. Lieutenant Clenzie seemed paralyzed and inefficient, as one might expect of a soft, womanish Rhinelander. I shot all six men, for it was necessary, and made sure that none remained alive. We expelled the bodies through the double hatches and were alone in U-29. Clenzie seemed very nervous and drank heavily. It was decided that we remain alive as long as possible, using the large stock of provisions and chemical supply of oxygen, none of which had suffered from the crazy antics of those swinehound seamen. Our compasses, depth gauges, and other delicate instruments were ruined, so that henceforth our only reckoning would be guesswork based on our watches, the calendar, and our apparent drift as judged by any objects we might spy through the portholes or from the conning tower. Fortunately, we had storage batteries still capable of long use, both for interior lighting and for search lighting. We often cast a beam around the ship, but saw only dolphins swimming parallel to our own drifting course. I was scientifically interested in those dolphins, for though the ordinary Delphinus delphus is a cetacean mammal, unable to subsist without air, I watched one of the swimmers closely for two hours and did not see him alter his submerged condition. With the passage of time, Clenzie and I decided that we were still drifting south, meanwhile sinking deeper and deeper. We noted the marine fauna and flora and read much on the subject in the books I had carried with me for spare moments. I could not help observing, however, the inferior scientific knowledge of my companion. His mind was not Prussian, but given to imaginings and speculations which have no value. The fact of our coming death affected him curiously, and he would frequently pray in remorse over the men, women, and children he had sent to the bottom, forgetting that all things are noble which serve the German state. After a time, he became noticeably unbalanced, gazing for hours at his ivory image, and weaving fanciful stories of the lost and forgotten things under the sea. Sometimes, as a psychological experiment, I would lead him on in these wanderings and listen to his endless poetical quotations and tales of sunken ships. I was very sorry for him, for I disliked to see a German suffer, but he was not a good man to die with. For myself, I was proud, knowing how the fatherland would revere my memory and how my sons would be taught to be men like me. On August 9th, we espied the ocean floor and sent a powerful beam from the searchlight over it. It was a vast, undulating plain, mostly covered with seaweed and stone with the shells of small mollusks. Here and there were slimy objects of puzzling contour, draped with weeds and encrusted with barnacles, which Clenzie declared must be ancient ships lying in their graves. He was puzzled by one thing, a peak of solid matter protruding above the ocean bed, nearly four feet at its apex, about two feet thick, with flat sides and smooth upper surfaces which met at a very obtuse angle. I called the peak a bit of outcropping rock, but Clenzie thought he saw carvings on it. After a while, he began to shudder and turned away from the scene as if frightened, yet could give no explanation save that he was overcome with the vastness, darkness, 
remoteness, antiquity, and mystery of the oceanic abysses. His mind was tired, but I am always a German, and was quick to notice two things. That the U-29 was standing the deep sea pressure splendidly, and that the peculiar dolphins were still about us, even at a depth where the existence of high organisms is considered impossible by most naturalists. That I had previously overestimated our depth. I was sure, but nonetheless, we must still be deep enough to make these phenomena remarkable. Our southward speed, as I gauged by the ocean floor, was about as I had estimated from the organisms passed at higher levels. It was 3.15 p.m., August 12th, that poor Clenzy went wholly mad. He had been in the conning tower using the searchlight when I saw him bound into the library compartment where I sat reading, and his face at once betrayed him. I will repeat here what he said, underlying the words he emphasized. He is calling! He is calling! I hear him! We must go! As he spoke, he took his ivory image from the table, pocketed it, and seized my arm in an effort to drag me up the companionway to the deck. In a moment, I understood that he meant to open the hatch and plunge with me into the water outside, a vagary of suicidal and homicidal mania for which I was scarcely prepared. As I hung back and attempted to soothe him, he grew more violent, saying, Come now! Do not wait until later! It is better to repent and be forgiven than to defy and be condemned! Then I tried the opposite of the soothing plan, and told him he was mad, pitifully demented. But he was unmoved, and cried, If I am mad, it is mercy! May the gods pity the man who is callousness can remain sane in the hideous end! Come and be mad whilst he still calls with mercy! This outburst seemed to relieve a pressure in his brain, for as he finished he grew much milder, asking me to let him depart alone if I would not accompany him. My course at once became clear. He was a German, but only a Rhinelander and a commoner, and he was now a potentially dangerous madman. By complying with his suicidal request, I could immediately free myself from one who was no longer a companion, but a menace. I asked him to give me the ivory image before he went, but the request brought from him such uncanny laughter that I did not repeat it. Then I asked him if he wished to leave any keepsake or lock of hair for his family in Germany in case I should be rescued, but again he gave me that strange laugh. So as he climbed the ladder, I went to the levers, and allowing proper time intervals, operated the machinery which sent him to his death. After I saw that he was no longer in the boat, I threw the searchlight around the water in an effort to obtain a last glimpse of him since I wished to ascertain whether the water pressure would flatten him as theoretically should, or whether the body would be unaffected, like those extraordinary dolphins. I did not, however, succeed in finding my late companion, for the dolphins were massed thickly and obscuringly about the conning tower. That evening, I regretted that I had not taken the ivory image surreptitiously from poor Clenzie's pocket as he left, for the memory of it fascinated me. I could not forget the youthful, beautiful head with its leafy crown, though I am not by nature an artist. I was also sorry that I had no one with whom to converse. Clenzie, though not my mental equal, was much better than no one. I did not sleep well that night, and wondered exactly when the end would come. Surely, I had little enough chance of rescue.
Well, isn't this just a pleasant ditty of dolphins and death, eh, Bjorn? It makes me want to pull out the old diving bell and go for a dip in a dim lagoon, but ah, there's still at least one warm body left in that dingy dirigible, and we sure need to see what happens to old Carl and his terror tube. So be sure to come back for episode two and the conclusion of H.P. Lovecraft's The Temple. The Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society is a production of Elmer the Embalmer. Episodes are released irregularly, often on the occasion of a full moon, lunar eclipse, or ritual sacrifice. The Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society is open to original short story submissions, if you dare, send your stories to Elmer by emailing semigelatinousliterarysociety at gmail.com. Rest assured, Bjorn will be reading him every single missive we receive. <laughs>